Uh, Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking this morning. Romans chapter 2, if you're using a Bible there in front of you, it's page 912. We're continuing a series. By the way, I'm Pastor Mark, if you're a guest with us. Um, we're continuing a series in the book of the first three chapters of Romans, which is entitled Understanding the Human Condition. And as we look at that, we're going to continue in our study this morning looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Romans 2, 1 through 4. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let's pray. Lord, we gather this morning here in this room and those watching online. Lord, I know that every life, every heart that is tuned in right now is known by you. You know their need. You know their circumstances. Lord, for one reason or another, we have all felt prompted to draw near to you, to want to learn about you. So, God, teach us, I pray. I pray that you would speak particularly to those of us that are Christians, that we would be open to hearing what you have for us in this challenging passage, that you might be exalted and glorified in our lives, that we might better know how to love people that are different um, and love people in a way that makes them want to know our God in whose name I pray, amen. We've been looking at the book of Romans, dived in in this first sermon series, Understanding the Human Condition. Last week, we looked at a very important passage in Romans, a challenging passage in Romans, Romans 1, 18 to 32, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that we saw there. We saw four different things because Romans 1 is really tied into what we're going to see today. And one of those is that God tells us that all humans know about God. He says, the invisible things of me, my eternal power, and my godness are revealed in the visible of creation and things around them. Everybody has a working knowledge of God. Secondly, all humans replace God with small g gods. We all have idolatry in our lives. And he's talking in Romans chapter 1, this big snapshot of humanity. He even ties it back, says, since creation, this has been so about humans. We saw a third, the result of our displacement of God. And by the way, idolatry, displacing God is actually the essence, I think, of sin. What has caused us to live out other sins is we displace God with other gods. We make other things central in our life. We put other things at the control center, on the throne of our lives. That results in us being impacted. It affected our thinking. It affects our sexuality. Uh, he talks about how we have these epi-desires, um, heightened uh, out-of-control cravings in our sensuality that manifests itself in all different ways. 
It also has affected, as verse 28 and following tells us, our human relationships in a very profound way. But he gave us the hope in, as he context verses 18 through 32 back to verses 16 and 17 that all humans can be restored to a relationship with God even though we have displaced him. Paul now turns in chapter 2 and addresses a different group of people, the moral, religious uh, people that are in the congregations, particularly Jewish believers here in the Roman congregations, but really anyone who it is an expose of anyone resting in their religious position or privileges. My sermon title is entitled, Religious People Can Be Dangerous People, and I think that is exactly what he's talking about here. He is talking about Christian people. We can be dangerous people. And I think he's explaining why and how in this passage. Before I dive into it, there is one definition I think important because I'm talking about religious people, religion. Um, and I'd like to just think, what does the word religion refer to? It's a much bandied word culturally today. Uh, a word search, Google, you would see religion is used in all contexts. But the word religion actually is a Latin word, it is the religari, uh, the, it is from two Latin words. Legari is to bind or connect. Re is to uh, do it again or to do it back. It is saying as the early Roman authors, and there are a number of them that talk about this term, uh, and it was picked up by Augustine in the 4th century, and he embraced it as this. They said, religions are basically man's attempt to connect back to God. Now, with that historical definition, I don't think we need to be uh, uncomfortable with saying Christianity is a religion. I understand that many of us in evangelicalism like to distance ourselves with Christianity from religion, and we often make the statement, well, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I get it, but I would suggest it might be a little bit disingenuous because we are a religion. As a matter of fact, with that definition, that is a beautiful definition of Christianity, that it is a system of truth that is personified, summarized in Jesus Christ, whose very purpose was to connect people back to Christ, to God, through Christ, that we have distanced ourselves, we have gone astray, we have moved away from God as the center of our lives, and Christ has come to reposition us in a relationship, as 1 Peter 2 says, He has come to bring us to God, to bind us to Him. So a historical, in a historical stance, I don't think we need to run from the concept that Christianity is a religion at all. However, the cultural perspective of the term religion does not usually track with this. The cultural perspective of the term religion is primarily associated with the dogmas, the rituals, the traditions of religion. For many people today, the whole concept of religion is based on its abuses and perceived failures. And so we understand why Christians try to disassociate ourselves from religion, but I think it's a beautiful, historically, it's a beautiful concept. So the question is, why has such a beautiful term become so reviled? Why has the idea of religious faith become so 
anathema to many people. And I would suggest to you what Paul would tell us in this passage is it is because of the practitioners of religious faith. Religious people are often viewed as a threat to contemporary life. In 2008, a Christian charity, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, a very large Christian foundation and charity organization in Great Britain, sought to uh, evaluate by poll the contemporary social evils of, of Britain in order to determine how they as a Christian organization could effectively address some of those issues. They wanted to see what it was that was driving people that they felt these are the hot-button priority concerns that we have in our culture and to see how the church could address those poverty, uh, immigration, uh, various social issues. They were shocked and dismayed to find that one of the premier social evils, contemporary social evil in Great Britain in 2008, with well over 50% of the people identifying it as such, was religion itself. It is one of our great social evils, they said. It is one of those things that is most destructive to human society. And a Christian organization which was trying to see how we can use our faith in order to speak to social evil found out that they themselves in their faith were looked at one of those preeminent social evils. There's not a uh, popular uh, Christian uh, not non-Christian, a popular atheist today of, of all of the, the various ones that has not written that religion is, in fact, destructive. It is regarded as intolerant, used to justify persecution. It divides society, causes conflict, spreads hatred and genocide. Here's what I think Paul would say to us. He would say, yes, there are misrepresentations. Yes, there are fallacies. Yes, there is spiritual warfare that is attacking religious faith, Christian faith. But recognize also here in Romans chapter 2 that some of that which is perpetuating this sense that religious faith and even Christian faith is a social evil is because of our practice of it ourselves. And in Britain, it was Islam and Christianity that were lit, listed as the two religious faiths that they saw as social evils, destructive to their culture. So what does Paul tell us to help us not be dangerous people as Christians? Well, number one, he tells us religious people, one of the things that he tells us that we can do, and there are actually three, but I'm going to focus on the first two. The third is just a result. There are two primary ways that religious people, including Christians, can be perceived and can in fact become dangerous. Number one, religious people can be guilty of underestimating. In verse one, he tells us we become guilty of underestimating our own sin. We do this by categorizing sins. In verse 1, he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on others. Now, remember the context here in Rome. I talked this the first sermon of the book of Romans. Remember the context. He's talking to churches which were made up of two primary people groups. There were those that had a background of pagan, Roman, Greek religions, uh, as he talks in another passage about barbarian religions. Um, 
And then there is this other group that are the Jewish heritage, Jewish Christians that have a moral background, that have some agree, awareness of the, the Old Testament scriptures, the, the commandments of God. And these groups have both had individuals that embraced faith in Jesus Christ. And now they are merged together. Now recently the Gentiles, the, the pagans have, have um, become the dominant group, but you still have both groups there. And now the letter of Romans has been read. Now, the way that they would read the letter of the Romans wasn't everybody came in church that day and everybody got a copy. They had one copy. It was written by hand. So one copy would be read. And imagine the reading the first time it was in your congregation in Rome. And Romans chapter 1 has just played out. And it's talked about the, the idolatry that people have actually worshipped idols and made images to birds and, and brought reptiles and, and man himself. And, and of course, Rome is, is replete with that kind of thing. There's, there's images in every home. And then it has talked about the sensuality in verses 24 to 27, the rampant sensuality. And, and you know that your city is full and you yourself perhaps have participated in the baths and all the various practices of immorality. And you're sitting there and this description has gone on in chapter 1 and you're just saying, oh my, this is my life. This is my background. This is, my, this is me. But there was another group of people sitting in that congregation that are not thinking that way. This is the group of people that have a moral background, that have a religious background in the Christian faith, in the monotheistic faith of Judaism. And they're sitting there, perhaps some of them smugly, looking and saying, yeah, yeah, Paul, summarize. I mean, this is, we see all this. We don't do idolatry like that. We don't, we don't, we don't go to the baths. We don't go to the, the, the gladiatorial contest. We are not involved in the bloodshed. We, are, we have been separate all this time. And then all of a sudden, Paul launches into chapter 2. And he says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else. And he addresses them. And what Paul is talking about in both Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 is the fact that everyone displaces God and puts in his place idolatry. For some, it's greed. He talks about money in, in Romans chapter 1. For some, it's sensuality and sexual practices. For others, it's moralism. It is religiosity in chapter 2. What he is highlighting is the fact that whether it is money or sex or moralism, they are all steeped in a heart that is prone towards idolatry. It's why John Calvin called the human heart the idol factory that we are prone to displace God. Maybe it's people's opinion that we, we deify. Maybe it's uh, having an easy life and, 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 and success and having enough money that we deify. But whatever it is that we trust in or we serve or we love more than God, as I mentioned, those are the three words that define an idol in the Scripture, becomes that which is idolized in our lives. And Paul is saying, this is not just these guys. This is you. And don't categorize their sins and see yourself as any different. You both stand guilty under idolatry, if we could put it another way, from a parable of Jesus. Romans chapter 1 is the prodigal son who lives a, a, a lifestyle of licentiousness, who happily took his dad's money and forked over money after money to prostitutes who, who lived a 
completely self-destructive lifestyle. Romans chapter 2 speaks to the elder brother and his pride and his own satisfaction and self-satisfaction in his own self-righteousness. The issue is Paul is addressing how can you have uh, imagine that one form of idolatry is any less serious than another? How can you look at one being seemingly acceptable and one being abhorrent? The more we grow in Jesus Christ, the more we should become decreased in our confidence in ourselves, right? The more we become confident in Christ, the more we see another layer of the onion of our soul that is stripped away and we see, oh my goodness, so many motives I didn't even sense, so much self-absorption I wasn't even aware of. I didn't even realize how much I manipulate people and circumstances utterly for myself. The more God in His grace allows us to see, the more we become less and less confident and satisfied in ourselves, the less we begin to look at others as being there and me here, the more we become utterly unconfident in what we're able to pull off. Years ago, and I have a large family, I always embarrass how many kids I have because you'll spend the next 20 minutes thinking about what life might have, might have been like with all those children, but now I need to tell you, I have eight children. Uh, I raised eight children. The, when I was young, and I was just starting my family, and I'm a journaler. I still have my journals. I've done it for a long time. I honestly remember that I would sometimes be journaling, and I'd be thinking, someday my children may read my journals. I wonder if they'll think, my dad was a great man. I went on and lived life. I've done a lot of um, funerals for people, and often when I would go to funerals, and you've been at, I've heard beautiful eulogies at funerals of kids and grandkids talking about dads and grandparents. And I've often thought, I wonder what my kids would think about me. And as I've thought that, I've grown less and less um, confident, because as my kids have gotten older and entered adulthood, we've had many honest conversations and many spoken in kindness very clearly, and I've realized the more that I have really assessed my own life and my own heart, I've realized how many misses I had as a father, how many I wasn't what I thought, blah, blah, blah. And so that I've reached this point in my life where basically, and I've said this to a couple of my sons, I've said it to some of you, my goal now is that when I die, that hopefully they'll be willing to put on my tombstone this statement, he tried. <laughs> I'll be happy with that. Now, what's happened? I'm not so sure anymore. I've seen things in myself. I've, I've seen how much of this was about me and, and, and how much I had my own idols and all this stuff. My children have enabled me to see. I don't know if the people in Romans never got, in Romans 2 never got married or they never had children, but for some reason they're not seeing the onion taken back and they're growing in confidence that, ah, oh, we're not like that part of the church. We're not like people with that background. And Paul is saying, Oh, yes, you are. 
You are idolaters. You are broken people. You stand on level ground. There's no categorization. And you realize those sins you haven't done. Well, the seed of every one of them is in your heart. And given the right fertilization, the right context, the right social background, the right economic situation, very likely you would have done those things because the seed of every one is there. You are idolaters. The best we can say as believers in our walk with Jesus is, Lord, I tried. I wanted to know you. And every day I, I feel I, I, I'm growing in love with you, but the more I walk with you, the more I realize this is not about Mark. It's about Christ. This is not about you. It's about him. And, and Paul says, guys, you've got to see that you are over, you're underestimating your own sin by judging others and looking down at others. The second thing he says, and, and that's done by categorizing sins, the second thing is, by rationalizing one's own sin. He says in verse 1, you guys do the same things. Now, I'm sure the moralizing group of the church was sitting there and going, wait a minute, could you rerun chapter 1 again? No, we didn't do the same thing. We did. No, we didn't. I don't have any, take a, take a walk through my house, Paul. I don't have any statues. I mean, I don't go to the Romans bath. I don't go to the gladiator. I, mean, I, I don't do that stuff. Well, here's what Paul says in verse 21 and 23 where he comes back to this same group. Here's what he says. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You steal. You commit adultery. You rob pagan temples. What in the world is Paul saying? Is he saying all these people do this? I think there's two possible interpretations I've seen in, in looking into this. Number one, some people believe he's talking about sin like Jesus did, that, that it is heart deep. And he's talking like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you know, um, you've heard that it's said of old, if you uh, commit adultery, but I'm telling you that anybody that commits, uh, anybody that sees a woman and, and lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. And he's talking about, you know, stealing. Well, well you've stolen whenever you have had a spirit of, of a lack of generosity or greed or covenanting and, and robbing temples. Maybe he means the spirit of uh, that you have, you know, you've tried to take from the temples what they've had historically. They've always been the big mucky mucks in town, and you're trying to see the church overwhelm them. Maybe that's a way, and it's a metaphorical type of thing, that maybe that's what he means. That's one interpretation, that he's just saying you have the same heart orientation, but you haven't actually done the deeds of adultery and, and uh, stealing and robbing the temple. There's a second way of looking at this, and, and actually this is where I think it, uh, this makes more sense to me. This is that he is actually talking about some extreme things that some of their party actually did. He's saying, look, you, you as a group, you, you moralizers in the church, because of your religious background and your training and that you know stuff, you're thinking, we don't do that. We don't look at those people. But you're doing some of the same things. At least some of your people are. I think this is what he's challenging them. 
He says, don't you dare give a pass because they're part of your group. You are guilty of the same things. The heart condition is there, and even in some cases, the expression is there. There is an insidious poison in human experience that makes us want to give our people a pass. We all tend to look the other way on the morality of our political party's champions because he or she or they are bringing about change that we view as critical. We look the other way on the practices of people if they are closely identified to what our agenda is. I was struck with this when the, um, the, the gay marriage thing went through. And there were a bunch of different stories you heard out there, uh, one in particular of, of people that wouldn't uh, do things for the weddings. And I remember one in particular, and there's been multiple like this, but one in particular was a woman who refused to do a wedding cake for a gay couple. And she was, in some circles of evangelicalism, immediately championed as a heroine because she would not do this kind of thing. And then it came out that she not only was on her third marriage, but that her other marriages had broken by multiple adulteries on her part. And the striking silence of the evangelical community that had so been so vociferous towards her in not doing the cake, where now there was silence, no complimentary disclaimers of her lifestyle, spoke reams to gays, and gays appropriately pointed out the hypocrisy, and they said, look, it's really just us. It's just our form of practice that they're against. And I think what Paul is saying is, be careful. Be careful the message you're giving, that we don't give a pass to our gang because they're helping us get some of our ends done, but we are inconsistent in the application of our moral perspectives we are under, underestimating also, in verse 4, God's tolerance towards us. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Paul is saying to the Christian, um, guys, you're not okay. You are broken people over here. You are fallen people. You are people that should not imagine yourself as anything other but recipients of God's kindness, his tolerance, his patience, that he has poured his love into your life, that he has embraced you as his children, is, is picture of how tolerant and gracious and kind he has been. And he even says you're continuing practices where he's showing this with the hope that you'll turn to repentance. The concept is see yourselves as objects of grace. I had a, a very interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago, a lunch. I had the opportunity to sit with a man who had been a pastor uh, in Florida. He's an associate pastor in Florida. Been there uh, just two or three years as a pastor. He's in his 50s. I was struck in talking to him with some, by... by the thoughtfulness, he, he was a measured thinker. He, he was a deeply theologically oriented guy whose perspectives I found insightful and helpful in all arenas, 
but one arena of life in particular was out of his own experience because this particular pastor had spent 30 years in the gay lifestyle with same-sex partners. And he was talking about how he had surrendered to Jesus Christ, recognized his own idolatry as all of us have to do, embraced Christ, and eight years prior, and to his amazement, in the last few years, God had led him into a pastoral ministry, an associate pastor's ministry. We were talking about a variety of things. One of the things that he talked about was his perception of Christians during that journey. And he talked about the phrase that many of us use, the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. And he said, I can tell you that that is not perceived how people think it is perceived, at least in the circles that I was involved with. He said, what it sounds like is that Christians are saying, we condescend to love the sinners, the sinners. But he made this statement. He said, the people who I found most influential towards faith were those that saw themselves as the sinners who hated their own sin, who were focused on that. It reminded me of, of the book that I read by uh, Rosario Butterfield, who also was a university professor in Massachusetts, uh, who has come out of that lifestyle into a faith in Christ, and who said that her view is we should love people and hate our sin, that the focus is we see ourselves. And Paul is saying, as you look at yourselves, you're categorizing things. You're, you're assuming that, that they're idolaters and, and you're sort of semi-idolaters. He says, no, there's only one idolatry and it's in a big eye and it's an umbrella that all of the church fits under. That we're all people that are idolaters. That we all are people that tend to underestimate our own sin, our, uh, you underestimate our own sin, and also underestimate the amazing tolerance that God shows toward us, that we could be part of the family of God. Part of the problem that makes the church feel like dangerous people is we underestimate. But the second thing is we overestimate. He says this in verse 23, religious people can be guilty of overestimating. He's talking about judging others. Now, judging others, uh, just a disclaimer here, judging others is not identifying sin when it is sin. If somebody comes up to you and lies to your face, you know they've lied to your face. It is not judging to say, you just lied. That is not a false, improper kind of judgment, nor is it improper to believe there is a code of conduct for all humans that God has created. That's not judging. So what is judging? What is he talking about? He tells us in verse three, 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Ours isn't. He says, your judging is limited. 
It is inaccurate. It is faulty. Therefore, be careful in the evaluations you're making. Once you go beyond the minuscule amount of data that is really appropriate for you, you are in a place of, of judging others inappropriately. He says the same thing in, sec, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul says this, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. He says, you can't do that. You should not be judging. You should not be evaluating based on thinking that you know people's motives. You know what's going on. You can evaluate them. You don't know why they do what they did. You don't know why they did it the way. You don't know their story. This is the tremendous importance of being very careful as Christians at not looking at other groups like that. We really ought not to be, I'll say this, you ought not to be making a lot of big declarative statements about immigrants unless you have some friends that are immigrants and you really know their story. You ought not to be saying a lot about people in, in various moral lifestyles unless you have a face there. So it isn't them, it's Chad or it's Celeste or it's Bobby Somebody whose story you understand. Somebody who you're doing like, because it's otherwise you're, you're evaluating based on inaccuracies. Only God knows the motives of the, only God knows what's going on. I'm not saying you, you don't have any convictions about sin, but I am saying we become very, very careful when we don't know the full stories of people. We need a face. We become guilty of overestimating their object, our, by our objectivity in evaluating others. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? You're just a mere man. You can't deal objectively, accurately, so we really need to guard our evaluations of others. There are three things I'm throwing this in for free. Three things that I think influence our objectivity, and I would suggest to you, I'd ask you to write these down and just ponder these. Because I think we become dangerous people when we evaluate and seek to cast judgment on others' behavior, practices, because these three things can often be involved. Recognize, first of all, that you give yourself the benefit of the doubt, but you need to extend the same courtesy to others. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. It takes it on face value. Doesn't assume I know what they really mean. I get what they're really saying. I, I, love believes. I believe. I choose to believe. You do that to yourself all the time. You give yourself the benefit of the doubt all the time. You're at work and you've been an absolute jerk in the afternoon and the way you've responded to people, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I probably shouldn't do that. But, but I have been covering for people all day long. I've been carrying this. They've been, they've been irresponsible. I've been doing this. You know what's going on. You have a reason. You go to a meeting, and, and, and you, have, you have been harsh in your words, and, and you find yourself very impatient with others. And you can tell you're repelling people, and you're immediately going your mind, well, I shouldn't do this, but I don't, I've had almost no sleep for three days. I'm so exhausted. I'm just, I'm not myself. 
Or maybe you're there and, and, and you're driving in the car and you're, you're screaming at people and you're all upset and, 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 and people are looking at you like, what's wrong with this young guy? And you're thinking, they don't have any idea that my girlfriend broke up with me last night. And they don't know your story. Your story influences you, and you give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Well, the reason I'm this way, the reason I talk that way, the reason I drove that way, it's because of, hey, everybody you meet has a story. Your boss has a story. Your coach has a story. Your kid has a story. Your parent has a story. There's things playing into their life, but we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, and we don't cut slack to anybody else. Their story is just as acute to them as yours is to you. We need to remember that because we pass judgment on others. We assume we know or we assume actually they don't have a story. Secondly, you condemn others when you are feeling condemned yourself. Moralistic religious people are people with a high sense of self-condemnation. You are most dangerous when you are feeling condemned, whether it's your self-condemning or you feel it's coming from other people when you're feeling a less than on the mathematical formula, when you're on the wrong side of that arrow, you are, you are, you're feeling inadequate, you're feeling beat up, you're feeling a less than. We pass on criticism when we are feeling critical of ourselves. When we are feeling condemned, we are most condemning of other people. It's why the Pharisees were dangerous people. You know, think of the Pharisees' life. These poor guys, they were miserable. They operated on a scale that was exhausting. I mean, they had no days off from having to be perfect. And we might look at them and say, yeah, but they were arrogant. They were sure, they were all of that. But they were on this terrible treadmill every day that their whole identity was being superior and getting it right. I mean, they had to hit the two fast days every week. They had to wash their hand every week. They had to get it right. Times they're criticizing themselves. They're beating themselves up. Beating yourself up is the time when you most beat other people up. Condemnation of ourselves is when we are most condemning of others. The Pharisees were scary people. They were not safe people. They were dangerous people. They were condemning people. Moralistic people that are not living in the, in the, and, and drinking and eating the vibe of grace are people that are always striving they're feeling condemned. They're not embracing the reality of acceptance in Christ. They're dangerous. They're dangerous people in the church. When any one of you stops walking in the power of the Spirit, you're still trying to live like a Christian. You're still trying to be this thing. You're trying to do it in your own strength. You will find that you are more critical and condemning of others than when you're walking in Jesus because you're feeling beat up. The beauty of walking with Christ is we walk in His acceptance. We are free then to love others. The Pharisees were not safe people. There's a, there's a book that I've read that was helpful to me, the verbiage of it. It's called Mud and the Masterpiece by John Burke. And in the book, he talks about, he's actually comparing the way the Pharisees related to people and the way that, that Jesus did. The Pharisees tended to see the mud. Wherever they went, they saw the mud in people's lives. Jesus Christ, who knew the mud better than anybody else, who knew sin better than any human that's ever lived, constantly was able to communicate to people their beauty. 
He was able to communicate to people they were valued. That's why nobody really wants to flock around a Pharisee. They're scary people. They make you feel condemned. You sense they're, they're comparing with you all the time. Those people are dangerous. Jesus valued people. Jesus, Jesus saw the beauty in people. The more that we live in the freedom of being loved by Christ, the more we realize that Jesus sees our own beauty, though we often see the unbeauty, the more we are free then to value us. You say, well, Mark, wait a minute. You know, I got this guy at work, and I'm hoping he'll come to Jesus, but he is such a jerk of a guy. The way he lives, he's so selfish, he's so this. And, and I mean, if I started complimenting this guy or started looking for the beauty in this guy, this guy will never come to Jesus. He'll never see a sin. Honestly, that's ridiculous. You can be a Pharisee to him. You can be the, 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 the Holy Spirit convictor to him. Do you think he's going to be drawn to your God? Do you think the Pharisee's God was something people wanted to know? See his beauty. Say, Lord, let me see in this guy things that I can love and affirm and encourage. I'll talk to him about Christ and sin whenever you want me to. But let me not be the Pharisee in this office. Let me not be the, 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 the personal Holy Spirit to everybody here. You condemn others when you're feeling condemned yourself. The freer you are in Christ's love of you, the freer you will be to communicate that to others. And the last thing, you neglect, you project to others what you would be thinking yourself in a given situation. Some of you know of the OCD detective, Mr. Monk, and um, he always wore the same outfits, button-down shirt, suit coat, which I realized in the first service is a fairly good outfit. But um, there's, one, there's one episode where he is... He is with uh, his associates there, and he's, he's manic with, you know, getting things proper and everything being perfect, and he knows that he has a button that had fallen off, and he had to sew it back on, and the threads are not going the way the other button's threads are going. And he's there, and he's all agitated, and they, sense, and they finally said, Monk, what is wrong? And he blurts out, he said, I know you're all looking at my shirt. And he says, I couldn't help it. You know, I, I fell off and I didn't have a chance to get it done properly. And he just goes on to this thing. His entire focus was on this button, so he assumed everybody else was. We tend to assume the motives in others that we would have in that situation. But we're all different. Some of you are married. You've been in this situation. You're driving in the car. You're driving. Your spouse has the phone. One of your kids calls or a friend calls. They pick up the phone. Excuse me, they get a text, and they're going to text back. And they start to text. And your immediate response, this is your phone. Say, wait, you're using my phone. Tell me how you're saying that. Read to me what you're saying. Because the way you say it is if, they think I'm saying that. They'll think I'm mad. This happens to my wife and I all the time. I'll have her phone and I'll be writing and she'll say, wait, how are you saying that? Because the way you would blah it out, if I talk that way, my friends will think I'm angry. 
So I want to hear, how do you say it? And we'll end up taking out all half the words and put it in fluffy and being nice because we talk different. We think different. We respond different. We're different people. So when people do something, they may not be doing it for the reason you do it. I've had people over the years that I would call people that really struggle with gossip, and I've been in situations where someone will say to me, they know that I and another person know something, and they'll come and they'll say, well, I assume everybody knows by now that they did this. And I say, no, I mean, I haven't told anybody. I know she hasn't told anybody. Why does she do that? Because, or he? Because that's what they would do with the information. If you're a control-oriented person, you come to the meeting, you see where you're sitting, and you say to the person that assigned the seats, I know why you put me next to so-and-so. And they say, who? Where? Are, what table are you at? Or they come to you and a control-oriented person, and you come up and you say, you called me up last to embarrass me. Say, I have no, I called you up in alphabetical order. But I'll tell you this, if you're ever in charge and I get called up last, I'll know why. Because we, we tend to put on others our own motives. You, you with me here? This is important. This is practical. Because there's behavior that happens. There's things people do. And you, without thinking this, this is basically what your mind is doing. Man, if I did that, this would mean this. It doesn't mean that at all to them. We have to cut people grace. There's all kinds of things here that Paul is saying to us that are practical about how we're to live out in the humility of our faith. But it's important because this is how he summarizes in verse 24. Religious people can poison the name of God. As it is written, verse 24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of your pride, because you don't see yourself as just one of the mass of idolaters in your church, because you are evaluating people with faulty information, with limited awareness, because you're trying to be the Holy Spirit to other people and assuming you are there not to encourage their beauty but only to point out their flaws. So what do we do? This is where I'd close. Two things I'd suggest. Number one, some of you are here and the most important thing for you is to know how much God is for you. You can't live out the freedom of God's love without imbibing the freedom of God's love. I'd suggest you start with a psalm like Psalm 73 and spend a couple of weeks every day reading and meditating on that psalm. A psalm where the psalmist was struggling with his lot and what he didn't have and what others had. And finally, where he's brought in the latter part of the psalm is just stunned with what he has in his relationship with God. Who he is to God in spite of his own. He says, I've been, he says, I've been talking to you like a beast. Uh, just brutish in the way I'm, I'm, I'm really living, Lord. But he said, I'm remembering now who I am with you and what I mean to you. Secondly, start asking God to show you the beauty in the lives of people around you. I believe 
That's what Jesus felt. That's what Jesus felt like to people around him. I think they felt this guy sees something in me that he feels is beautiful. He sees a masterpiece. He would point out their sin as he felt they were ready to hear it and the way to hear it, but he didn't drive them away. He didn't cause them to feel this is all about him. He's comparing himself with me and who's more righteous. Who's... He just sees my beauty. I'd encourage you to start praying that way about the people in your world and find out if you don't have conversations that you've never had before about the God that you love and they serve. Lord, so many things in this message this morning. We've gone so many different ways. Speak to us, Lord, that we would be people that are walking in humility, in gentleness, that we are people that see the masterpiece of people all around us, that their mud is incidental compared to the beauty we see in them just like we were to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.